All right. Our text tonight, we've, we've really broken up our study in Ephesians um, into bite-sized pieces that we can look at in, a, in an evening. Um, so it, it feels a little bit artificial to do what we've been doing with um, taking such small bites, but it allows us time to actually uh, look at these passages. And we've been talking about the relationship of, of husband and wife, and uh, in chapter 6, it'll go on to children. Now, I do want to say that that in the month of October, we'll be taking a, a brief exodus from Ephesians to just talk about biblical manhood and womanhood, because a lot of the themes come up in this particular chapter, but we want to broaden it to what all the scriptures uh, have to say. And the pastors worked on that uh, last year to come up with a statement that would kind of uh, reflect what the scriptures say to bring some clarity into the world we live in. So I'm going to be jumping off into that uh, during the month of October, uh, Lord willing. So verse 29 of Ephesians 5, we read these words. We're kind of in the middle of a thought. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, be glued to. That's what we talked about, and not just for kids. Be glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, do you want, oh, you have, want to switch this out? Okay, so, so which part do I switch? So even mics can be disconnected. All right. Appreciate the work these men do to make it possible for everybody to hear okay. All right. So when we look at these verses, it, it presents to us... Oh, wait a minute. I stopped, didn't I? Where did I stop? This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, that each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And as we are reading through that, I underlined a number of verbs. There's actually three couplets, three sets of two verbs to describe the way a marriage union should be for good. So I've entitled uh, our teaching tonight, United for Good. That, that this union is one that's supposed to be beneficial to both husband and wife. So the, the first two that we see, nourish and cherish, like Jesus does us. And of course, this is talking to the husband in the application of his loving his wife sacrificially. We already started talking about uh, like taking care of your own body and how Christ takes care of the church, his body. Uh, a husband's to take care of his wife, to nourish and cherish her. And then in verses 31 and 32, leave others and hold fast to each other. Um, King James had leave and cleave, which made a nice rhyming, uh, rhyming thing, but cleave has two meanings. You can have cleave 
where you cleave something apart or cleave as the clinging together. So hold fast makes that clear. And then love your wife and reverence your husband. And I've, I, I put reverence instead of respect for a reason. I'll talk about that. Um, respect is fine. There's a range of meaning, but uh, we're going to talk about that. So these three characteristics, this is a really straightforward uh, description of what a marriage is supposed to look like. So the first thing that we, we see in our first couplet are these words, to nourish and to cherish, okay? And those words are going to give us insight into not only how Jesus, how Jesus loves the church, but how husbands are to love their wives. John Stott made this comment, and, and by the way, his commentary, a very simple commentary, um, it's in the Bible Speaks Today uh, series, um, it, it is one of the best commentaries on Ephesians in terms that you can find. It, it's simple, it's clear, it's exegetical, it makes, that is, it's drawing out what's actually there, it's theological, but, it, but it's also, uh, he has good application in there, and somehow he does it with great economy of words. So it's the kind of, of commentary you'd have on your shelf uh, where you're not going to bury yourself too deeply, uh, where you, your head's swimming, because it has that kind of clarity, but it's really, really helpful. Well, he makes the comment as he begins this section, whenever the husband's headship mirrors the headship of Christ, then the wife's submission to the protection and provision of his love, far from detracting from her womanhood, will positively enrich it. And so, you know, part of, we come to the Scriptures with our own baggage and all our kind of preconceived notions about uh, how things should work. And when we understand that, that God's design for the home, God's design for marriage is such that, that if we go by His design, it's actually for our good. We tend to think that, um, you know, when we've got rules and laws and that kind of thing, that if we conform to it, that it's, that it's limiting us, it's holding us off from fulfillment. And, but when we're talking about God's designs, and, and particularly design that He has created before sin even entered into the equation, then we're talking about something that is positively good. And the more we can conform to that design, the better. I should comment at this point, too, that obviously... And we'll talk about this more in the month of October. Obviously, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and sin entered the human race, this relationship, literally made in paradise, um, started to have difficulty. And, and God predicted it. It was part of the curse that, that the wife's desire would, would be to, to buck her husband's authority, and the husband's tendency would be to, to dominate his wife. And so, for, for both her response to her husband and his treatment of his wife not to be what it ought to be, for it to be twisted, for it to be tainted and marred. And so, the, the difficulties that we face in our marriage is, and the reason that the reason we have to work at it is because we, we not only are born again if we're believers, but we still have the sin nature. We're, we're not completely sanctified. And to whatever degree I let sin dictate my relationships, I'm, I'm, going to, um, I'm not going to treat other people the way I should. And that's particularly obvious in the home. 
Well, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ says the church, because we're members of his body. We, we naturally take care uh, of our bodies. Not perfectly, that's fairly obvious, um, but, but we at least feed our bodies, we clothe our bodies, we, when we're tired, we try to get rest. We generally do what we think will cause our bodies pleasure and not pain. In fact, when we're not taking care of our bodies the way we ought to, it's usually because there's some perceived pleasure, like I've got to have three helpings of fried chicken instead of one, or I, I need to have more ice cream, or I don't feel like exercising today. Um, it's usually, you know, we're, we're, we're going for the pleasure, but we're actually producing a problem down the line. But the point that he's making here is that it's just natural to protect your body. You don't walk into oncoming traffic. You don't jump into a bed of thorns unless you've got some way of protecting yourself. You're going to naturally take care of your body. And he says, look, a husband should be taking care of his wife in the same way. It should just come naturally because she is part of his body. You're one together. And he says he nourishes and cherishes us. To nourish is the the process of bringing children up to maturity, providing for them what they need to grow. So think about making sure your kids get their vitamins and they eat right, and, and you're making sure they go to the doctor when they need to. Anything that's necessary to their growing up healthy and strong. And then the cherish has the idea of showing affection and, and tender love, that, that safe place. So a husband provides that kind of safe place, is supposed to provide that kind of safe place for his wife, and, and to treat her in a way that she is growing up into maturity, that she is flourishing. And then what, what puts this at a level where, where all of us who serve as husbands, or will one day serve as husbands, really know that we have to keep working at this, is that this is as Christ does the church. And suddenly, we're in the category of perfect, loving care. We don't always take adequate care of our bodies, but Christ has never failed to care for His church. We are members of His body, and that connection brings us blessings that He alone deserves. He has said He'll never leave us or forsake us. His sanctifying work in us is going to culminate one day in our immortality and in our sinlessness and, and in the full enjoyment of a universe made new where righteousness has taken up residence. We enter into His inheritance, the inheritance that the Son deserves. We become those whose home is the Father's house, the heavenly city, something we could never earn or deserve, but that is ours because of the loving nurture of Jesus Christ. It is our marriage to Him that brings us infinite wealth and joy into our lives, and it's going to last forever. And we know the best is yet to come, but we're, we're already getting some of that experience now. You know, look at the number of, you know, I don't know what size your, your biological family was, but look at the size of your spiritual family. Look at the number of people that are closer to you even than your biological family because of Jesus. Look at the benefit that you receive from those who've been born again and transformed by Jesus and who pour their lives into you. All of this is the work of Christ 
in the body to our mutual benefit. Everything we enjoy as members of a local church and of of the universal church, everything we enjoy, every benefit we have comes because of the connection to Jesus Christ. He's the vine, we're the branches, the life force that is changing people and making them loving is a life force that comes from Him. There's not a day that goes by, if you're a believer, that Jesus doesn't show love to you, that Jesus doesn't show you mercy, that Jesus doesn't show you grace. Um, He's given us His Spirit. I mean, He really has connected us vitally to Him, the Spirit of God that that is given by the Father and the Son, that Spirit actually indwells us, lives in us, doing that that change from the inside out. This is an amazing gift from Jesus. And when you think about it, not one of us ever deserved it. We were sinners. We were rebels to Him. We, We didn't want God interfering with our life. We were running from Him. We were fighting Him. And, and God in his love turned our hearts and wooed us, as it were, into a relationship of love with him. So the question is, husbands, would you describe your care for your wife, instead of and, it's as nourishing and cherishing her as Christ does the church. You know, meditate a little bit on what what that feels like and what that ought to look like. Do I nourish my wife? Am am I contributing to her life in a way that she's growing as a person? And do I cherish her? Does she know that I'm a safe place for her? Like, am, am I like the first place that she would run when there's a need because she knows that she'll find security with me? And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we can think we're doing better than we are. Um, would your wife, could your wife describe your love for her that way? In other words, you might feel like you're loving her that way. Does she feel, is she getting the message that you care that much about her? Does she know that you cherish her? Does she know that you nourish her? And, you know, this kind of read, this is not, this is not macho man, you know, we think about leadership, and we think about being in charge, and th- this is what being in charge looks like if you're a believer following Jesus. And I know a, a number of you here aren't married yet, but think about, think about, you know, in and if and when you do get married, do you think that like saying your vows on a platform suddenly puts this kind of mentality into your heart? You see, this, this is the way that we're supposed to be treating Christian, Christian brothers and sisters with affection, with care for them, not to use them for what we can get out of them, but we're to consider others more important than ourselves. Uh, we're to deal with one another with love and humility. Uh, we're to be submitted to one another in, in, in love for Christ's sake. Um, we, we, we put ourselves under Uh, the needs of other people, and we do it gladly because of the affection and the love that we have. We've seen this from the Apostle Paul, this hard-driving missionary that travels all over the world, has just this this fantastic uh, affection for the people that he has served. He doesn't lord it over them. And no husband that's following Jesus lords it over his wife 
He nourishes, he cherishes her because he loves her with a sacrificial love that's willing to die for her if necessary to make her life better. So nourish and cherish, two really important words, our first couplet that we, I know I'm pushing the definition of couplet a little bit, English teachers, so don't hold me too tight to that, but um, this first little uh, couple of verbs. And then secondly, leave others and hold fast to each other. So we see where we're getting these two verbs. By the way, when we're looking at Scripture, you know, Scripture is our written word. So we're going to find the meaning of Scripture by actually looking at the word. So to leave his father and his mother and, and it splits line here, and hold fast or be glued to, cleave to his wife. This bond is so close, according to this text, that it surpasses even that of parent and child. That's remarkable. A mother carries her children inside her before they're born. They have a life-giving connection to her. The biblical word for compassion is, is often defined as the kind of deep compassion that a mother has for a child in her womb. Remember, those of you that have gone through this experience, remember the first time you felt the baby move. And then as, as the baby grows, you know, even dad can put his hand there and feel the kick or whatever. And that level of closeness is profound. And yet the marriage bond is to be stronger yet. A man's to leave his father and mother and hold fast or be glued to his wife. So a married couple must remember that their bond together is greater than even parent-child. Now, that, that goes for their relationship to their own parents, and that goes for their relationship to their own children. So I think... Most of us, as we're growing up and we think about moving on and starting our own life together, um, we say, well, yeah, you know, there needs to be that, you have to have a little of distance from mom and dad because, you know, sometimes it's a little, particularly when you, got, you each have in-laws and that, that can produce a little bit of friction, so sometimes to have a little bit of distance helps. And so we kind of get that, yeah, there needs to be some separation here, we need to start our own family. But you do recognize that the text would, would lead us to see that this marriage relationship, your, the husband-wife relationship, is stronger even than parent and child, and it goes both directions generationally. Many a couple drifts apart personally with nothing but the kids holding them together. So when the kids are gone, there's no glue left. And it's not uncommon for the marriage to fall apart. And sadly, of course, the relationship can fall apart even before the kids are grown. And we know how painful that is. And some of you have been through this, uh, where the marriage breaks up, and, and then there's the whole question of what we do with the kids. And it can get really ugly and really painful. But here's the point. A husband and a wife must see to it that they nurture the bond, that they nurture the glue between them. 
If their closeness is greater than even parent and child, then it, it certainly would be greater than any other relationship they have as well. And such closeness, that over the years, that takes intentionality. That takes uh, vigilance. That takes giving yourself up for your spouse. That, that takes paying attention to the things that change. You know, at the beginning, it's often quite easy to nurture this. There are no kids around, you, you're young, you've, you've got more time, um, the pressures haven't quite mounted up to where they're going to be, and so there is more time you can spend together. But as time goes on and the demands of work get greater and the kids, uh, you know, if they start growing up and their needs are greater and there's just so much work and you're just so tired, it's, it's very easy to just say, you know what? That, you know, that closeness together, that spending time together, the unhurried minutes, the really building our relationship, that, you know, that was our honeymoon years. And, you know, maybe someday if we're not too old, once the kids move out, we'll get reacquainted. Um, and, but right now, it's just batting down the hatches and survive this. And let's just, we're like working part, you know, partners. And there's all kinds of things that can happen with schedules and everything else. And so let me just say practically, I don't know where your marriage may be right now, but I know there's a lot of pressures on it where, where you can drift apart in lots of ways. I mean, another thing that happens is people don't stay the same. None of us stay the same. We don't look the same as we used to look. We don't, we, we, we keep adding experiences. There's all kinds of things that, that change up on us. And, and so we, you know, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, well, you know, you're not the same person I married. Well, okay, Captain Obvious. Um, in, in one sense, you are the same person. I mean, we, you know, those of you that are older, I mean, until you start losing your mind, you still remember what it was like to be 14 and 17 and 25 and 35 and however. You remember that. I mean, it's in your memory banks. You remember the feeling of that. And, and yet there are other things that change to where you just kind of, you just make do. So, so let me put this challenge to you. Do you really think that, that what God is describing here is just making do? And you say, well, wait a minute, I, you know, I don't really know how to fix the problem, or it's, you know, it's his fault, or it's her, her fault. Okay, forget the whose fault it is, okay? The, the question is, how close is your relationship? And, and if it's not something that approximates this, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to change like you would anything else that's out of line with the Word of God, what are you going to change to make this what it ought to be? And you say, well, you know, I just don't feel like it. Tough. One of the reasons you don't feel like it is because you've let it drift. You've let it go. So, so figure out a way. You've, you fell in love at some point. You married each other for some reason. Figure out what that is and see what you can do to nurture that because this is God's call for you. This this is actually more important than you can imagine even as we, as we go further here. And, and as far as your children are concerned, you say, well, you know, I've, I've got to spend time with your kids. Do. Do spend time with your kids. But your children are most secure and best served 
when your relationship with your spouse is what it ought to be. They need the security of knowing that home is safe. They don't need to hear mom and dad at each other's throats. They don't need to be worrying whether one of you is going to leave. They, don't, they pick up on whether you're irritated. They pick up on whether you can't stand being around each other. They pick up, kids aren't dumb. You know that, right? They're, they're way smarter. They pretend like they're dumb sometimes so they can get away with stuff. But they're way smarter than they let on, and they are noticing how you treat each other. Now, these words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, they, they actually come from Genesis 2, the creation account of Adam and Eve, of Eve in particular. And we read in verse 21 of Genesis 2, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now, you know, God could have created Eve with a word. He created the whole universe with words. And he could have created Eve out of the dust of the ground like he did Adam. But he chose to create Eve from Adam. Because of the point he was making, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Remember, none of the other animals in the universe matched up with him. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses adds this, therefore, because of this, because of the way God created man and woman at the beginning, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God created the closeness of husband and wife in the Garden of Eden. God made woman from man, and in the generations that followed, think about it, God makes man from woman. We're all born of woman. When Paul discusses the husband's headship over his wife in 1 Corinthians 11, he actually points this out. He points out the mutual independence, the mutual uh, interdependence that we have uh, on one another. Woman was taken from man, but man is born of woman. There, there is a oneness, a mutuality that's going on here. Becoming one flesh refers to more than just the physical closeness that God limits to the marriage relationship. Rather, it's that that physical union is to express the full union of husband and wife to the degree that they both live for the benefit of one another, just as a head and body function together for mutual benefit. A body's not functioning right that beats up on the head, and a head's not functioning right that does damage to the body. In Ephesians 5.32, yes, we need to flip this. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this is a, a big word that Paul has used before. It refers to something that was hidden that now is revealed. And the last time that Paul used this term in Ephesians was when he was discussing the union of Jew and Gentile, between which there's this huge divide in the ancient world, into one body in the church. In fact, the first century of the church was largely dominated by trying to get that relationship to work well. 
Christ and his entire church are also one. The church gladly submits to him as its savior, and he has given himself up on the cross out of love for his bride to cause the church to flourish so that it reaches perfect holiness and beauty through the washing of the word. A Christian marriage is to put this mystery on display so that it's no longer hidden. Okay? You've got the mystery of Jew and Gentile unified within the church, but you also have the mystery, in other words, it was once revealed, once hidden, now revealed. You also have the once hidden, now revealed mystery that a Christian marriage is supposed to display the relationship of Christ and his church. And, you know, the church comes into being there on the day of Pentecost and and, and the Messiah didn't come until the first century. So this is something that w- was hidden and now is revealed. So the question is, would people come to understand some measure of Christ's love for his church and the church's submission to Christ by watching how you and your spouse live together? In other words, it it is the ultimate, not just for kids. It's it's to be this object lesson that's day in and day out where, where people don't find it strange that Christ would love his people this way and that his people would submit to him and follow his lead this way because they see it every day that they see you living your life with your spouse. And so... You know, there, there's gospel to this, and this, this is the significance. If, if you and your spouse are not living in a way that conforms to what God is talking about here, you actually, you obscure the gospel. You hide it rather than revealing it. And so, if nothing else will motivate you to do what you ought to do in your marriage, and, and I, you know, I understand, I mean, over time, there's all kinds of problems that can build up. There, there's, there's hurts, there, there's resentments, there's, there's things that are difficult to work through. Um, there's a sense of betrayal sometimes, um, other kinds of problems. Um, but for the sake of the gospel, it would be worth figuring out what needs to be tended to and to tend to it and to get the help that you need, to make the effort that you need. If sometimes, you know, you're, you're so stuck in the rut together that, that trying to work it out with just you two is really hard to do. And, and maybe you're thinking, you know, I wish we could get some help, but it's so embarrassing to go say we need help. Look, everybody needs help, okay, to some degree or another. It's not a bad thing to ask for help. That's what the body's for. And, and we've tried in the church to actually uh, give you options um, where you can get help that you might need. If you're, and it doesn't have to be a huge problem. I, you know, when we're doing pre-marriage counseling, I tell the couples, look, if you're just even six months in, like in the honeymoon period, or three weeks in, and you're running into some difficulty, don't hesitate to give me a call. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's see what we can work out. Don't, don't wait till it's festered so long and dug so deep that, that there's all kinds of damage. Try to take care of it. 
And so we want, we want others to see Jesus and his church and the way we, our marriages work. And then number three, our final couplet. We've got, let each one of you love his wife, and, and Paul keeps hammering on that, and let, his, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this is a little bit of a change-up because he used the word submit before, the idea of placing yourself under somebody and, and their leadership. And this kind of fleshes out kind of the heart behind that. He's reiterating the way a husband and wife give of themselves to each other. The husband is to lead with self-sacrificing love. His headship is not to crush his wife, but to do all things for her benefit so that she flourishes and attains what she could be. And then Paul uses as synonym for submit this time when he talks about the wife's self-giving for the sake of the husband. If you think about it, really, loving one another is what all Christians are supposed to do. And, th- and this is a way that a-, a wife shows her love for her husband. The word respect is a decent translation. Uh, the word is actually a word, uh, it can be translated, literally, it means fear, um, so we translate it fear, we translate it reverence. It's often used in reverence to a fear of God. So, so the use of the term has a lot of range, the profound awe and adoration that we would give God along with a genuine fear to disobey Him because it would disrupt the relationship. And a wife, a wife treats her husband as the church treats Christ. So there is a correspondence. She doesn't, she doesn't want to do, you know, the church doesn't want to do what would dishonor Christ and what would displease him, and and neither would a wife who loves her husband want to do what dishonors him or or displeases him. So I chose the word reverence because I was trying to find something kind of middle of the scale on, on on the spectrum of what this word can mean. Sometimes respect just means kind of forced honor, like you got to show respect to a government official who's personally unworthy, um, but you show deference to him. And so it's kind of like, give them some respect. And I don't think the tone of the word quite has that flavor. It it works here if by it we mean treating every human being with respect because he's made in the image of God. Okay? That that has the feeling to it. But I, I put reverence because I wanted to pull in that kind of heart open to the other person, that that appreciation. Um, a love and appreciation, um, not just show him some respect kind of thing. So if a wife treats her husband this way, she treats him this way not because he's perfect like Christ is, but she does it as to the Lord for God's glory. And, and that gives it a heartfelt dimension. The same way every Christian's to live life in humility and love toward other people because of who Christ is. So, does your wife know you love her with a heart of self-sacrifice? Or does she feel like you're just using her? Does your husband know you reverence him, that you're, you're glad to yield to his leadership, that you're, you, you believe in him, that you know, yes, you found out over the years that he's flawed, but you're still in his corner. You're, you're in it together. You're a team. Does he sense that from you? Because that's, 
what's conveyed with this kind of word. We, we, live in a, we live in a society in a time where there's a lot of emphasis on being in it for ourselves and being self-fulfilled and, and a lot of downplaying of serving other people and, and looking for their benefit. And, and marriage just doesn't work well if, if both in the partnership are just looking out for themselves and using each other. Um, it works well when both give to the other as God calls us to give. Now, this kind of marriage may seem like a tall order in a culture that has devalued marriage for years and sabotages it in multiple ways. But in Christ, it should actually be the norm, not the exception. It, it always, it's always grieving. It's always tragic and sad when in a Christian marriage you see something that looks more like the world than what looks like Ephesians 5. And, and some of you have been through it. You know the pain of it. You know the devastation of it. But in Christ, with the Holy Spirit at work in us, this should be the normal pattern. And, and the disruptions to the marriage ought to be the exception. That doesn't mean we treat those that are struggling in their marriage as second-class citizens, but what it does mean is don't say, well, you know, nobody's got a perfect marriage, so I'm just not going to work hard at it. No, you have what you need. If you have the Spirit of God, you have what you need from God to actually live this way. And let me encourage those of you that, that aren't married yet, and, and many of you someday will be, make sure that you're walking with God in a way now sensitive to the Spirit of God, because He's the one that produces this kind of attitude toward people, so that when you get married, it's just an extension and a concentration of the way you already live. Because this is all about the gospel and what God has done for us and how He changes us. Nourish and cherish like Jesus does us. Leave others and hold fast to each other. Love your wife and reverence your husband. Six words, but plenty to work on. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, that you would help us. The law of entropy, everything breaking down, affects our marriages too, affects our own walk with you. And so, Lord, I pray you'd make us zealous to walk with you, to love one another, to, to carry out your will in the arena of the home, in the most private part of our lives, because that really likely reveals more about who we actually are than the public. So God, I pray that you would, you would make our marriages strong, that you would help each of us who are married to, to grow in our ability to, to love and to serve one another. Um, God, I pray for those who will be married, that you be building in them the kind of character qualities and love for you that will make them a great husband or a great wife. I pray for our children, that they would be blessed with, with marriages, with husbands and wives, with parents that really love each other and display the gospel in the way they live. For it's in Christ's name we pray.
Amen.